All right, good morning again. Really glad you made it. How many of you experienced some black ice this morning? Raise your hand. If you did, Loveland to Denver. It's kind of crazy. And uh, coming here today, I'm happy just to be here and alive because I slid off my driveway into a, a ditch uh, this morning. And as I slid off, I, I kind of yelled something like, oh, Hosanna, something. <laughs> Glad we got that one out of the way. So long story short, this overview of the whole Bible, we are using material uh, very creatively generated by Pastor Mark Batterson, who's been here at Timberline, real friend of our church, uh, material that's being used by National Community Church in Washington, D.C. Also, you know, if you heavily use a source, you should give credit to the source. And I just want to mention Louis Giglio's work on creation as well, and amazing videos that he has done. As we begin this um, this series, long story short, I, I have another confession to make, uh, which I'm sure will come as a complete shock to you all. Uh, and that is that I was quite a naughty boy at school. Your surprise was limited, if I may say so. I'll try that one again. I was quite a naughty boy at school. Better. I didn't become a Christian until I was 17, and I kind of messed around, drove my teachers crazy, not least by the fact that there were some subjects that I just wasn't very good at. I was terrible at French. We had to learn French in British high schools, and I can only remember uh, one sentence out of my French class, which is, ou à la gare. <laughs> it means, where is the railway station? I remember that. And I've waited my whole life to use that phrase. I've been to France, but I have never needed the railway station. So that was wasted education. But my worst subject at high school, ladies and gentlemen, was art. Art. <laughs> art. Pronunciation wasn't good either, but art. I was terrible at it. I created these terrible works of art. My art teacher, frankly, hated me. That's not an understatement. And so I really like those join the dots things. You know what I'm talking about? You got a number, you got the dots, and hey, there's the Mona Lisa. I like that. Over the next 12 weeks, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to try and join the dots of this. This is an amazing book. Shakespeare's been translated into 60 languages, Harry Potter into 67 languages, which says something about our culture. This book, 2,400 languages, written by 40 human authors in three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, over a 15-century period. What a, what a mixture of authors, fishermen, tax collectors, shepherds, kings, doctors, political prisoners, political advisors, farmers, poets, and written in all kinds of different places. Genesis through Deuteronomy, probably written in the wilderness. Jeremiah written from a dungeon. Paul writing mostly from prison. Luke writing the book of Acts mostly on the road in Asia Minor and in Europe. John recording Revelation while in, on, uh, in exile on an island. The book isn't organized in chronological order, so it may surprise you to know that most likely the oldest book of the Bible is actually Job. The book 
is a library, really. It's organized into categories or genres of writing, law, history, poetry, prophecy, and letters. And we've got two testaments, Old and New Testament, or Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the story of God in creation, and then specifically, primarily, the story of God with a beacon nation that he raised up in the earth, the nation of Israel. And so we get the first five books of the law, Pentateuch, five books of law. Then the histories of Israel. And then the poets start to bring their poetry and their song, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Then the prophets begin to speak to the nation, Old Testament. And then we go into the new covenant, the incarnation of Christ, who comes to redeem and offer salvation to the whole world, the story of God for the planet, and specifically the story of God with this beacon community called the church. And so we've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the early church, the book of Acts, and then the epistles or the letters, letters written to individuals and to churches. Many see this book as a rule book, but it is primarily a story book telling what N.T. Wright describes as the big fat story of God, the gradual revelation of God. At the beginning of the book, we see him as creator. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, he has revealed himself using 400 different names. It starts with God. It ends with God. Just the book of Genesis uses the word Elohim for God 37 times. The writer wanting to catch our eye and warm our heart and say, look, this is all about God. And despite all those different authors, 15 centuries, there is a seamless story that emerges of a passionate God in pursuit of people, relentless pursuit. Did you know that God is pursuing you if you don't know him. Pastor Brent reminded us this week in our pastor's meeting that um, the story of God is so much about his presence. Genesis, presence of God in the garden. Revelation, presence of God with his people throughout eternity. You've got tabernacle, you've got temple, you've got the incarnation of Jesus, all about the presence of God. So why are we doing this study. Well, first of all, uh, this is a neglected book, actually by culture and by Christians, gathering dust in so many homes. And yet here we are at this moment in history, a postmodern culture, which means there's no meta-narrative, there's no core story. If I may put it simply like this, we have lost the plot and here is the plot. It's a unique book inspired by God. I, I love reading. How, how many of you are like me? You read seven books at, the, at once and you finish about three of them. How many of you uh, are like that? I, I, I love reading, but this book is like no other. It is God-breathed. Not only that, it's living and active in the sense that the Holy Spirit can take the words, we read the Bible, the Bible reads us. But I have to say that it's also a misused book misused. Uh, the rabbis have an ancient tradition that every word of scripture has 70 faces and 600,000 meanings. 
And this book, by people just opening it and pulling scriptures out of context, because the basic rule of hermeneutics, interpretation of scripture, is that we need to take the whole message, comparing scripture with scripture. You can make this book say anything you want if you wrench things out of context. This book has been used to justify slavery. When Wilberforce stood up in the House of Commons in London, England, and introduced the anti-slavery bill, Christians, evangelical Christians, opposed him waving this book and misusing scriptures about slavery to do so. It's been misused. It's been used to oppress women. It's been used even to justify Holocaust. That's why we've got to know the big story. And not only that, this book, to use a maybe a somewhat grandiose term, this book gives us a biblical anthropology. What's that? A biblical anthropology is an understanding of our humanity as God declares it to be. Who is God and who are we? This book, so vital in a culture where science has often been presented as an enemy of the book, but I don't think it is at all. The physicist Sir Isaac Newton, when he published his theories of gravitation and motion, he did so as a religious man believing that he discovered laws established by the Creator. But we're living in a culture where absolute truth has been rejected, where, where Freudian psychology suggests that God is just a projection of our own human desires and needs. We live at a time in history of great fear. We live still under the shadow of despicable events like Auschwitz, we also live bewildered in an avalanche of information, overwhelmed by stuff. So earlier this morning, I got onto social networking, like I do each morning, um, and discovered photographs of breakfasts being eaten by my friends <laughs> around the world. Utterly irrelevant, but we're buried in it. Who are we? As humans, and this book says we are an integral part of the creation plan, more than animals. And when we feel arrogant about ourselves, we're reminded that we were made from dust. And when we feel inferior and useless, we remind ourselves we are made in the image of God, this vital book. Now, there are resources um, available, many different translations of the Bible, which are helpful. When I became a Christian back in 1637, there was only one translation pretty much available, which was the King James Version. Beautiful, I'm not against it. I still use it on occasions. Wonderful poetry, but mostly incomprehensible to a 17-year-old like me. Now, there are many translations. Why? Well, some of them are word-for-word -word translations where every word is directly translated, which gives you a more accurate translation but can break flow in reading. And also it's kind of difficult with metaphors. So if I translate word for word, he hit the ball out of the park, it's a metaphor that may lose its meaning in translation. Then there are others which are more thought for thought translations, like the message, for example. I believe that they can all be useful uh, for us. Also, there's a Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, you can get a Bible app. It's free. 
at um, bible.com forward slash app. That is um, available too. Let me say this before we move on. People have died defending this. And here we are, I say it sincerely, thank God for the freedom we enjoy in America. Here we are able to carry this book without fear when around the world today there are people who would be put to death if they were caught holding this book. Don't we have a responsibility to really give it our attention? All right, that's the introduction. And now I'd like to deal with creation in the next 17 minutes and 33 seconds. Please pray. Genesis chapter 1, let's dive in. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The Bible. Over the centuries, Christians have studied it, preached it, dissected it, hopefully applied it. But one thing that Christians love to do when it comes to the Bible, many Christians love to argue about it. And you don't have to go very far in the Bible to start an argument. Just the first couple of verses of Genesis chapter 1, the creation story. When we look at that story, we rush quickly to a potential conflict. There are some Christians, many Christians, who believe that God created the universe in six literal 24-hour periods. And let's agree right now that if God wanted to do that, he could do that. I can hear someone saying, well, yeah, I believe that because I just believe what the Bible says. The question is, what does the Bible actually say? It is not diluting the truth of the Bible, but rather seriously interrogating what the Bible is actually saying. And I just need to put this to you. Some people use the six literal day idea as a touchstone of orthodoxy. And if you don't believe that, you must be a liberal, or so they say. I need to tell you that throughout history, there have been Christians who love Jesus and completely love his word, but they take different views about that. There are actually six different approaches to the six days of creation. And so John Calvin, Louis Burkhoff, the systematic theologian, they believed in six 24-hour periods. Other greats like Augustine and Aquinas and Francis Schaeffer um, take a different view that these were God periods. And let me say that there are some difficulties with the 24-hour thing, not least the fact that the sun was not created until the fourth day. So you don't actually get a 24-hour period until day four, which is a bit awkward. My point being this, please don't write in irate and say, are you diluting the truth of Scripture? No, because I've not even told you which of the six views I believe in. What I am saying to you is let's not miss the message of the creation story because we're too busy arguing about the mechanics of the creation story. We declare God can do it any way he wants in the beginning God and everyone hopefully said yeah. point number one 
Coming out of this creation story then, point number one is God is bigger than big. God is bigger than big. We British are quite good at understatement. We like to understate things, you know. So if there's a hurricane outside, we say, actually, it's rather jolly windy, isn't it? <laughs> Here's the biggest understatement in the history of understatements. Listen to this one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> it's like, Wow. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This God who said, let there be light. Light is the basis of everything. It's the basis of life. And, and look what God did. It's amazing. Just look at this earth. 24,000 miles in circumference. You feel like you're just sitting down relaxing right now. But let me tell you that right now you are spinning at 1,000 miles an hour. Some of you are feeling giddy at the news. It's going to make one complete turn every 24 hours. Did you know that even more incredibly, we are currently right now speeding through space at 67,000 miles an hour? That's 1.3 million miles a day. So even on days where you don't feel like you got much done, <laughs> you did pretty good. Uh, and the kids' nursery rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star. Little star. There's one star in our solar system. It's called the, it's called the sun, 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface, 93 million miles away, and so light traveling at 186,000 miles a second, it takes eight minutes to light, for light to get from the sun to us. It is big. This is the earth. If this was... If the earth was a golf ball, this is the earth. This is actually my golf ball. I actually own this. I don't, I don't ever play it because I don't have a swing. I have a spasm. But this is, <laughs> this is my golf ball. If the earth was a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet in diameter. You could fit a million of these earth-sized golf balls inside the sun. <laughs> and the barber says... He breathes out stars, one of hundreds of billions. But if you think, if you think that's big, let me, let me just tell you about, about Canis Majoris. Canis Majoris, it's the brightest star we found, the biggest. Um, Canis uh, from canine, Majoris from big. It means big dog. <laughs> How'd they get that name? I reckon a couple of astronomers were looking through the Hubble telescope and they went, whoa. What are we going to call that? And the other guy said, I don't know, but that's one big dog right there. <laughs> Where's that golf ball gone? If the earth was a golf ball and you put it next to Canis Majoris, here's the comparison. Put a golf ball at the bottom of Mount Everest. You could fit seven quadrillion earths inside it. And he did it all, and he started it all by saying four words. That makes me think that when I try and advise God about the way things should be. <laughs> what should our response be to this? It should be all, all. I think we've lost all. Everything's awesome these days. I find it personally quite irritating. I went to a restaurant recently. The server said, what would you like? I said, I'd like a cheeseburger. She said, that's awesome. <laughs> what? 
It wasn't awesome. Carus majoris now. Now that's awesome. And, and our response should be awe. Our, our response should be worship. Uh, Nehemiah 9 connects creation with worship. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens is the prayer there. And all their starry hosts, the earth. And then it says the multitudes of heaven worship you. Our response should be awe. Our response should be worship. Our response should be trust in this big God, Isaiah 55. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my way is higher than your ways. He's big. We need to remember that when life miniaturizes him and makes him small. He's big. Secondly, God is closer than close. God is closer than close. Genesis 1-2 says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The first revelation of the Holy Spirit, before we hear anything else about the Holy Spirit, we see that closeness and also we see the banishing of chaos, bringing chaos back into order. God close, big but in the detail. Psalm 36 in the message says God's love is meteoric. His loyalty astronomic, his purpose titanic, his verdicts oceanic. Yet in his largeness, nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. Psalm 139, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. You know what? I, I, I've been reviewing what God has repeatedly affirmed to me through my years of following Jesus. And I know there's one message that keeps coming through over and over again, particularly in rough times, I'm with you. And I'm like, is there anything else? I mean, like, how's it going to turn out? I'm with you. The presence of God. He's big, but he's close. Closer than the air around your body. He's not out there, he's here and can bring order to chaos. If you're not a follower of Jesus, by the way, he wants to do that creation thing again and turn you into a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Thirdly, thirdly, God is a playful artist. God is a playful artist. He makes something out of nothing. He speaks things into being, and it's been said that the word speaks there could be sings, sings. And when you think about it, Creation is God's song, God's symphony. Did you know that the science of bioacoustics tells us that there are millions of songs being sung that we can't hear because they're either ultrasonic or infrasonic? So we can't hear whale song, whale song, but they're singing. We can hear the meadow lark, but many of the notes we can't hear, 300 notes. Did you know that earthworms sing? go, you're making that up. No, there's a very sensitive instrument and there is a, a, a faint staccato note that comes from the earthworm. Did you know that, that atoms sing? Arnold Summerfield, the German physicist and pianist, he says that hydrogen atoms emit 100 frequencies more than a grand piano that emits 88 frequencies. The electronic shell of the carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as the Gregorian chant. And we can't hear it, but it's song all around. 
I think one day we will hear it. The Bible teaches us that one day we're going to get glorified bodies. I am looking forward to the glorified body. I'm especially excited about the glorified abs. That's going to be amazing. I can't wait. But maybe, maybe we'll hear some of that song. What does that tell us? First of all, it tells us something about art and creativity. Sometimes the artists, the poets, the dancers can feel marginalized because we focus on words. Sometimes I think we're almost nervous of the arts in church. I, I travel with a theater company. I'm doing it in Europe again in a few weeks from now, and, we, and we've done some theater stuff here. And not here, but elsewhere, I've had people say, all this drama and art and poetry, and where do you find that creativity in the Bible? Show me it in the Bible. And I, I said, well, without sounding like Julie Andrews, let's start at the very beginning. Within the beginning, God created. It starts from there. Not only that, but this speaks to us about, I believe, one of God's greatest works of art, which is redeeming. Redeeming? What does that mean? It means that God is able to take that which he is not the architect of and turn it into something beautiful. Does it all the time. It wasn't God's will that David sleep with another man's wife, Bathsheba, that wasn't what he wanted. But out of that line came Jesus. And they take him to a cross, the acts of evil men. But what does God do? He turns it around because he's a redeemer. If you go to our prayer room, you will see a beautiful cross made from barbed wire, made by Carl Guswell and donated by Carl and his wife, Jan. It is beautiful not just it's the way it's shaped, but the message it brings. Barbed wire is normally rusty and prohibitive and ouch. And God takes the barbed wire in our histories. And if we'll give it to him, he won't just forgive us, but even can bring something beautiful and good out of it. He's a playful artist. Well, the last thing is this. And that is that God trusts us with his masterpieces Specifically with his masterpiece, the planet. 20 years ago, if I wanted to get in trouble as a preacher, all I had to do was mention the environment. And people would react, don't you talk about that. I want to stand before you without hesitation or fear, with full biblical con uh, confidence, and say that a sensible, responsible approach to environmental care is not a political issue. We've allowed it to be politicized, but it is fundamentally a biblical issue. Why is that? Thanks from the front. Why is that? Because you see, there are still some Christians who say it's a distraction. They even use the second coming as an excuse. Why? Why is this so important? The Bible shows us the ownership of this planet. Psalm 24, the, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Can you imagine lending something precious to someone and a few years later they return it, but it's trashed? I'm not sure you're going to be happy. That is why, ladies and gentlemen, a responsible attitude towards the way we live environmentally is not some kind of new age weird thing, but it is, I'm gonna get passionate, it is fundamental 
And the Bible begins with this statement showing us the title deeds, the ownership of the planet. It's God's. And we don't worship the planet. That's where it goes wrong. It's not Mother Earth. It's Creator God. But if we believe that, calm down, Jeffrey. If we believe that, we will live in a responsible fashion, realizing that we are not owners, but tenants. God help us. As I wrap this up, all of this creation picture, well, we need, we need to bring it all down to Monday morning because the Bible does that. You see, the Bible doesn't just give us a, a bunch of stuff just to make us go, oh, great. But it brings it all down to where we live. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Here's the picture. Then this. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The big God who is close, who can redeem that which is ugly, who cause us to live beautifully as tenants. And for those who are weary and overwhelmed, he says, that God is our God. Pray with me. We thank you, Lord, because as we begin this journey, which we commit to you, that you are great, and yet you are closer than close. Be with us in this journey. Ignite our hearts afresh with a new revelation of you and your story. Help us to know your closeness when we don't feel your closeness. We bring to you the barbed wire of our messes and failures, the things that shame us. Would you weave them, even though you are not the architect of those episodes? Would you bring beauty from them? Would you help us to live well and lead the way when it comes to coherent, biblically-based environmental responsibility? And as we think of a golf ball at the foot of Everest, and that big star. We realize, Father, that there are people here today who are battling big stuff. I want to pause in my prayer before I, before I conclude and we move forward. As our heads are bowed, very, very simple invitation here. If you're facing a real big challenge right now and it's kind of overwhelming, I want to include you in prayer. So as our heads are bowed, I'm looking around. If that's where you find yourself, would you just acknowledge that by raising your hand for a moment? Would you do that? It's big. 
It's big. And you find yourself beneath the shadow of it. Thank you for, for raising your hand. We commend to you, Lord, each person. You know their story. You know their story. Would you grant them faith and strength and hope and a revelation of you afresh that ignites trust in their hearts? And would you too intervene? Make yourself known in their stories. Great God, close God, you're able to do it and we give you thanks for the reality of your presence close to each one. So we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said...